Welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. All right, folks, how's everyone doing? I hope you're staying cool during this blistering summer heat. Of course, if it's summer in your neck of the woods. I know it's in some parts of the United States, they've already gotten some snow. But not where I'm at. Where I'm at, it's hot, humid, and the state is literally on fire. But that's not why we're here. I hope you enjoyed the last episode about the gas attack on April 22nd, 1915, which opened the Second Battle of Ypres. It's such a powerful yet dark moment in our history. Powerful in the sense that it changed the way wars would be fought from that point forward even onto today's modern battlefield. Just that one single event with the invention of using gas on troops, and the invention of nuclear and biological weapons would eventually come around. The last chemical attack was just in 2018 in Syria. The Duma chemical attack left 40 to 50 dead and hundreds injured. And this wasn't the first use of gas and chemical weapons in Syria. This type of warfare will continue. It won't stop. There's no hope for humanity. I'm sorry to break it to you like that, but there's always going to be somebody or some group of people who will find a way to unleash hell. And to think it all began on April 22nd, 1915. Some admin notes on the last episode while editing, I noticed some snoring in the background. I'm not sure if you heard it. I hope you didn't. But if you did, I apologize. I wasn't able to edit the monster out. Apparently, my dog just racks out once I start talking. I might just have to lock him out when I record. His snoring is kind of rude. But he has been known to knock the door open with his head, so that wouldn't be good either. I'll have to figure something out. With my current life schedule, I think I'm going to have to release episodes every three weeks for right now. I'll adjust back to every two weeks if I can get a hold of my time management. No plans to stop the podcast. I love doing this. I just need to adjust my time a little bit. It's what it is right now. Next on the list, I've received a few messages from individuals seeing how cool it must be to see historical sites of the Great War and how they were thinking of taking a trip, but were a little intimidated for various reasons, asking for advice. First of all, don't be intimidated by world travel. It's one of the greatest things you can do, and you'll thank yourself for taking that step. Yes, there's an unforeseen event taking place which has caused restrictions, but I think eventually things will go back to normal, or at least I hope it will. If you're thinking of visiting Ypres and don't want to do it alone, I can put you in contact with a few tourist companies that won't break the bank, they're professionals at what they do, they know history, and will take you to amazing sites. I normally would rent a car and do everything on my own, but when I visited Ypres, I only had one day, so I decided to go on a tour bus. And for that one day, it was worth it. The guy did a great job. My wife and I had a blast. I visited Verdun all the way up to Arras and Amiens, the Somme, Normandy, and Flanders fields. So please don't be afraid to reach out to me for questions. Get out there and see the world and the history it has to offer. All right, let's get down to business. In this episode, I'm going back to the Mediterranean, back to the Dardanelles for the Allies' plan to land, land ground troops and the Turks' defensive plans. This isn't going to be an episode of violence, gore, or destruction. It's going to cover the strategy for Gallipoli, which is an important piece of history. I know some of you might just enjoy the battles, explosions, gunfire, etc. And I do too. 
But if you're a fan of history, I think you'll appreciate this. Every episode can't be about violence. Explaining the plans is really important because it'll tell the story of why things went down the way it did. It'll become clear this may not have been the best move for the Allies. But before I start that, I want to briefly talk about supply and demand for the Great War up to this point. Everyone knows that since the machine gun made its debut in the late 1800s, then being distributed to the armies after the turn of the century, then of course making its way onto the battlefield of the Great War, it was a prized piece of hardware, and it's produced a devastating amount of kills with one squeeze and hold of the trigger. Nobody can ever take any credit away from the machine gun as being a mass casualty producer and feared weapon system on all fronts. But the machine gun wasn't the most devastating weapon during the Great War. In fact, it was artillery who dominated the battlefield. World War I was the first and last major war in which more men were killed by artillery than small arms or any other sort of kills. The body count from artillery was becoming astronomical up to this point, just like the amount of shells being fired. The shell shortage by 1915 was a serious problem on all fronts. The shell shortage was actually becoming known in 1914, just a few months after the aristocrats decided to drag the world into war. Before the war kicked off, France believed they had a solid three-month supply. However, within weeks after the start, they were already being rationed. The Marne nearly cleaned them out of inventory. The British believed they had six months' supply before the war, they were running low by October. Russia believed they were superior in, art in artillery because they had a stockpile of a thousand rounds per gun before the war kicked off. And in reality, that was a lot. But this war wasn't like expected. Their guns were firing at a rate of a thousand rounds per gun every two days. The Cossacks were also caught off guard and the amount of shells being fired. Grand Duke Nicholas, not to be mistaken with Tsar Nicholas, demanded to the Russian government that three and a half million shells be provided per month. Russian industry had no chance supplying such a demand, so they began placing orders overseas, first with the British, then with the United States. By early 1915, Russia was already close to bankrupt, but out of fear the East would crumble if Russia couldn't be supplied, the British supplied them with tea. I'm kidding. Why would Russia want tea? They have vodka. The British gave Russia a line of credit for $25 million per month. However, the majority of this money due to corruption in the Russian procurement system ended up disappearing. Most of the shells ordered were never delivered to the front. Shocker. France and Germany adjusted to the shell shortage the quickest. In Paris, 50,000 skilled industrial workers were brought in by a young socialist named Albert Thomas. They were exempt from service because they possessed certain labor skills the war also needed. Eventually, that number would increase to half a million workers assigned to factories and mines. Thousands of women were also brought in to work the production lines, which started a gender revolution in Europe. Also, prisoners of war didn't always get a hot in a cot. They too were put to work if they weren't being shot. 
Germany was similar to France. Skilled workers were exempt from military service, women were brought in, and prisoners too were forced to work at some cases. By 1915, Germany was producing up to 4 million shells per month. Side note, oddly, Falkenhayn recruited a young Jewish industrialist named Walter Rathenau to find alternative production methods and increase output to support Germany's needs. He basically created a successful supply chain for Germany's war economy. He was assassinated in 1933 by an anti-Semitic terrorist organization. He was viewed as a democratic martyr until the Nazi party banned any praise for Rathenau. Just another one of my tidbits of history, now back to our program. Millions of shells had been fired onto the battlefield, and it wasn't even a year into the war. Experts claim it'll take over 100 years to dispose of live ordnance on the Western Front alone. There's just not enough time and resources involved to make it go any quicker. It's common for a farmer in Ypres to come across an unexploded shell on his or her land. They just scoop it up, take it to a designated area along the side of the road, and somebody picks it up and takes it to be properly disposed of. I've seen several shells lying on the side of a road in, in the Ypres salient in person. They were just waiting to get picked up. Everything seemed normal to the people who live there. Hats off to the small number of EOD individuals out there making a difference. Also, some historians have questioned the shell shortage and it possibly being a false report. They feel this was a scapegoat for generals losing battles, a made-up excuse. We don't have enough shells. That's why we lost the battle. I don't believe it was a scapegoat. I just don't believe that. Even sides that were winning were claiming a shortage. Just by the math alone, the shell count from the start to what they were firing, yeah, they were almost running out, if not ran out. Alright, let's move on to the main topic for this episode, the Dardanelles. After a failed attack on the Narrows on March 18th, Vice Admiral John DeRobic was persuaded to take another approach. Landing army troops on Gallipoli would be the new course of action. I called it a failed attack, but it was more of a soup sandwich. A plan which looked good on paper and quickly fell apart after the first battleship sunk. The Allied fleet didn't expect to be hit with what was being thrown at them. The British War Council started to doubt the Turks would just take a seat and surrender over its forts in Constantinople. I mean, the nerve of the Ottoman Empire to put up a fight. A sizable amount of Allied troops were now moving into the Mediterranean ready to support a new offensive by mid to late April. A lot of the soldiers were being staged at Cairo, waiting to board ships. When I picture Cairo in 1915, I picture palm trees, a desert oasis with the pyramids and the sphinx in the background, which probably smelled of spices, an enchanting exotic city you probably read about in history books. Well... Cairo in 1915 was not that place. In fact, it was a wild place to say the least. It was full of brothels, bars, and wild Anzacs running amok. Venereal disease was a big problem and bar tabs were being left unpaid. Tensions were starting to boil between the locals and the Aussies. On Good Friday, which in 1915 fell on April 2nd, Around 2,500 Anzacs started a riot in the Waza district of Cairo. They clashed with military police, terrorized the locals, and set fire to brothels and bars. And some historians have said there was some racial ag aggression. 
Now, I don't condone this behavior at all, especially when in a foreign country. I believe showing respect if you want to get respect. In the military, even overseas, 99% of the bar fights I witnessed were Americans fighting other Americans. Brother versus brother. Stupid shit. Boys will be boys sort of thing. And understand this. Anytime you take a massive group of boys to be sent off to war and die like the Anzacs faced in 1915, there's always going to be aggression, high tension, and testosterone being thrown around. It's who we are. It's in our DNA. I was at Oktoberfest in Munich. I think this was in 97. My pals and I were at the Hofbrauhaus tents with other members from my unit. It was us, a group of soccer players or football players. There was rugby players and other brave souls who dared venture in that night. Let's just say it got out of hand very quick and most shocking though, nobody ended up in jail. It was a rough night, but a fun night. Good times. General Sir Ian Hamilton arrived in the Dardanelles on March 17th, just in time to witness the failed naval assault. He was now placed in charge of the new Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, or the MEF. Hamilton, along with the British War Council, believed the only option at this point to defeat the Turks was to land army troops. Assault by land suppressed the forts and their guns, then the ships could work to clear the mines without any hassle. Then they can finally move on to Constantinople. Fair enough. The plan seemed logical being at this point the mines posed too great of a threat along with the heavy guns from the forts. They can't afford to lose their fleet. The Anzac Corps, which was made up of Australian Imperial Forces and New Zealand Expeditionary Forces, was commanded by General Sir William Birdwood. He and Hamilton immediately went to work drawing up plans. The forces were beginning to gather. On April 4th, the Wild Bunch of Anzac Corps had left Egypt, heading for Lemnos, a Greek island west of the Dardanelles. A third brigade from the Anzac Corps had already reached Lemnos on March 4th. They were selected as the covering force for any landings. A soldier described what it was like on Lemnos, saying, quote, The island seemed mostly given to pasture, and there was an absence of trees and bushes. Two or three small villages were in view. The housing looked very old, small, and very close together, and in the following weeks, we found that it was so, and we had the pleasure of marching through about six or seven different towns or villages. The inhabitants of the island were nearly all Greek and seemed very hardy folk, quite the typical peasant. Pasture for sheep seemed the chief mode of making a living, and agriculture work was done in the real old-fashioned way a wooden plow with oxen pulling, or perhaps a donkey and an ox paired. Businessmen of the place with a bit push came to us with their wares, nuts, oranges, figs, hard-boiled eggs, and white cheese, which none of our fellows could stomach. Private Herbert Fildes, 12th Battalion, 3rd Brigade, 1st Division, AIF. End quote. It doesn't seem like a bad place to be at the time, on an island, being sold figs, oranges, cheese, with a view of the Aegean Sea, doesn't sound bad. But of course, this wouldn't last long. They'll soon be thrown into the inferno. The 42nd Lancashire Fusiliers, a territorial division, were also readying themselves to depart Cairo as a possible reserve force for the MEF. 
The 29th Division was the last of the British regular divisions, created by recalling garrison troops from far ends of the British colonies. It was formed in January of 1915. In March, they practiced over and over disembarking the ship, readying themselves for a landing before heading to the Greek island of Lemnos on April 7th. Although the 29th lacked in training as a unit in whole, the soldiers had individual military skills, which overall made them what Hamilton called the backbone of the MEF. The French weren't excited about the idea of landing troops in Gallipoli for a ground assault, and it's understandable. After all, they've been in fighting since the beginning. They had their dead spread all around the Western Front. They knew what fighting on land could do. But then again, so did the British. Therefore, they didn't have a choice and hurried to create a new army division for the Mediterranean from the men left over at depots from France and Africa. The division would be known as the 1st Division of Corps Expeditionnaire d'Orient, the CEO. It comprised of men from the 175th Regiment, the 1st Regiment de Marche d'Afrique, the 4th Regiment Mixte Colonial, and the 6th Regiment Mixte Colonial. This was a mix of French, Senegalese, Foreign Legion, and Zuva battalions. Zuva, I hope I said that right. I think it's Zouave. Maybe it's Zouave. Military experts believe the 1st Division CEO matched the British 29th pound for pound. And I believe they were. I think they were just as good of a fighting force as the 29th, which made the Allies strong on paper. But they also had one of the best naval fleets at sea in March of 1915. But that didn't work out too well for them. Sometimes size doesn't matter. It could be the little guy who throws the harder punch. And I'm not saying the Ottomans threw a better punch, but they did have an advantage in Gallipoli. This was their home turf. They had ample time to prepare defensive positions, and they did have the higher ground advantage from the start. This makes a difference, especially back in 1915. I feel like I can use my fists decent in a one-on-one -on -one fight when needed, especially in my younger days. I've done some throwing of the fisticuffs. However, I'm definitely at the age where that's the last thing I'm looking for, but I will and can use them if needed. Not saying I'm Mr. Furley carrying around deadly weapons, but they're toughened up leather mitts, I would say. Quick story. As a young Joe in the army, I sparred with a buddy from my platoon who was smaller than me in size. I went in underestimating him, which was very stupid on my part. He hit me dead on and he hit me hard. He didn't drop me, but I did back away and quickly had to shake it off. I did put him down, but overall from that day on, he earned my respect. We became friends and I learned not to underestimate anyone. You don't know what talents they possess. Turned out he used to do a lot of boxing and martial arts. The Turks knew how to use their fists and were preparing to throw them around. They just suffered a defeat at the Boer Wars. They were coming into this fight prepared. The Allies were starting to amass coming together for this new offensive. The French division first came together in Malta, which is also where they first encountered their allies. A French sergeant described it saying, quote, The English cheered us. Frenzied hoorahs were exchanged by both sides. The Marseillaise was sung by the English. We replied with, God save the king. The two anthems are frantically applauded by one and all. A trumpet sounds, it is applauded. Then, 
numerous trumpets and bass drums make an incomprehensible noise, which we applauded anyway. Sergeant D. Arnold Promiro, 175th Regiment, 1st Metropolitan Brigade, 1st Division, CEO, end quote. And there were other units being formed and deployed to assist with the MEF's landing operation. The Plymouth and Chatham battalions from the Royal Marine Light Infantry had been sent to the Dardanelles in February of 1915 and were the first to land on the shores in an attempt to take down the forts. After the outbreak of the Great War, Churchill took over 20,000 naval and marine reservists who were not needed at sea and created the Royal Naval Division, or better known as the R&D Infantry. The R&D already had been tested in Antwerp in 1914. One of the most talented officers thrown into the R&D was a submarine lieutenant, Rupert Brooke. Brooke was already an acclaimed poet. Before the war, he belonged to a few elite poetry groups, one of which was the Dymock Poets, who included poets such as Robert Frost and Edward Thomas. Brooke would write home and would often speak of the war in a romantic sense, like many did before stepping foot onto the front. One letter home read, quote, I'm filled with confident and glorious hopes. I've been looking at the maps. Do you think perhaps the forts on the Asiatic corner will need quelling and will land and come in from behind and they'll make a sortie and meet us on the plains of Troy? It seems to me strategically so possible. Will Hero's Tower crumble under the 15-inch guns? Shall I loot mosaics from St. Sophia and Turkish Delight and carpets? Should we be turning point of history? Oh God, I've never been quite so happy in my life, I think. Not quite so pervasively happy, like a stream flowing entirely to one end. I suddenly realized that the ambition of my life has been, since I was two, to go on a military expedition against Constantinople. And when I thought I was hungry or sleepy or aching to write a poem, that was what I really blindly wanted. End quote. There's something about that guy. He's not your average meathead pilu or grunt talking about living in the monk against his fellow hairy faces surrounded by explosions, gore, rodents. Brick spoke with style. He spoke of war as a romantic sense of duty, a calling to life that's been building up. And he believed this. It shows in his writings just like many soldiers and sailors did before being thrown into the pits of hell and experiencing what the war really had to offer. The glamour seems to always get thrown out the window when they see a human body being grotesquely ripped apart or rats making a buffet of a body. This also shows in writings from soldiers who survived the war. But Rupert's fate wouldn't be like most. On April 23rd at the Greek island of Skyros, he succumbed to severe blood poisoning from an insect bite on his lip he received while drilling for the upcoming landing. He was buried on, in an olive grove on an island when his friend Dennis Brown passed Skyros en route to Gallipoli on the 2nd of June. He wrote the following, saying, quote, We passed Rupert's Island at sunset. The sea and sky in the east were gray and misty, but it stood out in the west, black and immense with a crimson glowing halo around it. Every color had come into the sea and sky to do him honor, and it seemed that the island must ever be shining with his glory that we buried him there. Sub-Lieutenant Dennis Brown, Hood Battalion, 2nd Naval Brigade, R&D. 
Dennis Brown was killed two days later in an attack on a Turkish line. I said earlier the Turks had the upper hand during the Gallipoli campaign. They had the higher ground, they had the home field advantage, and most importantly had time to put together a defensive position with the help of the Germans. General Otto von Sanders arrived at the port of Gallipoli on the 26th of March after being placed in charge of the new Turkish 5th Army. He was immediately faced with a challenge of how to distribute his troops in a defensive position to defend off the Allies. Did someone say pressure? Von Sanders arrived in Turkey to take command of a new unit. Yes, he had been a military advisor up to this point, but taking command of a new foreign army is a different story. All eyes from the Ottoman Empire and German leaders were now focused on what Sanders was going to do. He later wrote about this, saying, quote, The important question was where the hostile landing should be expected. On it depended the grouping of the troops, which were rather inconsiderable in comparison with the great extent of the coast. All could not be occupied. The decision, therefore, must be made on tactical grounds. The positions of the five existing divisions up to March 26 had to be alerted completely. I ordered the division to hold their troops together and to send only the most indispensable security of detachments to the coast within their sectors. Whatever might be in store, in view of our weak forces, our success depended not on sticking tight, but on the mobility of our three battle groups. End quote. Did you hear what Saunders was quoted saying? Only the most indispensable security of detachments. He said it. The generals live by it on all sides. They use soldiers as targets with no regards to human life. This was how it was back then. They often ordered soldiers not to fight, but to die. And later on, Sanders would be accused of war crimes against the Greeks. But that's another story for another time. Here's another thing about the Turks going into this. They had been morally defeated during the Balkan Wars and promised not to relive that. To answer that problem, by 1914, they had massed a sizable army and were determined to put up a fight. A hard-charging Turkish captain describes his motivation preparing for this battle, saying, quote, A year earlier, we had the Balkan Wars and were defeated very badly. But on the other hand, we had the practice of fighting. In this war at Gallipoli, we were facing two great forces in the world, the French and British people. They had great armies, but they were lacking practice. Captain Ashir Arkayan, Artillery, 5th Army, end quote. Captain Arkayan wasn't necessarily wrong, but he wasn't exactly correct. Yes, the French and British didn't get the experience from the Balkan Wars, which wasn't long before 1914. It was still fresh to the Turks. But to say they lacked anything was a little arrogant. It was proven up to this point the British could shoot and duke it out with the best, and the French had the heart and would stand and fight. Both combined as a team shouldn't have been taken lightly. The Turks organized their army into divisions, each consisting of three regiments of three battalions. This triangle structure would prove to be effective and would eventually be adopted by most of the armies in the Great War. And as I'm typing this, it makes more sense why it was successful. In the infantry, if you're on a platoon-sized patrol, you'll establish 
if they do this today, of course, and ORP stands for Objective Rally Point, then the key is to set up security for your platoon. Not to go too into detail, three squads will form a pyramid with your point being the six o'clock. The objective is to tactically place the platoon in a formation to form a security pyramid that can cover all fields of fire. Pretty straightforward, but there's a lot more into detail, which I won't go over. You'll have all angles covered from 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, etc. Relate this to what Saunders did with the Turks. They were covering all angles of fields of fire. Another obstacle for Sanders to hurdle was the terrain of Gallipoli. It was rough and really sucked to have a battle on. It lacked shelter, water supply, and just overall supply routes for the men. Men would have to stay on the front for weeks and sometimes months at a time. His solution was to have the larger forces within short distances to some sort of population. Von Sanders identified three possible locations for Allied landings. First was the Buller Isthmus at the neck of Gallipoli. There he based the 7th Division. Second was on the Asian side at Kumkale and Basica Bay, which the Allies could take the Asiatic Straits batteries from the rear. There, he placed one regiment from the 3rd Division forward, covering Kumkale and Yenisher, while the other two waited closely by the ruins of Troy, which the ruins of Troy should populate on Google Maps so you can get an overall look. The 11th Division placed one regiment to watch Basica Bay, while the rest of the division waited in strength at Ising. Finally, Sanders believed an assault would take place either at Helles on the southern tip or on either side of Gabatepe, which lay directly opposite of the town of Medos and the Khalid Bar Plateau. This whole area would be covered by the 9th Division. The 19th Division, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Mustafa Kamal, was a reserve force based at Bugali, and were, they were just waiting on General Sanders' orders. Mustafa is an interesting man, which I'm sure I'll be talking about him a lot more to come. Lehman von Sanders has been given the credit for orchestrating everything the Turks did in Gallipoli. But in reality, Turkish military leaders had already created a reserve system before Sanders had stepped foot onto the Ottoman Empire. And finally, it was Sir Ian Hamilton's turn to come up with his set of plans. He had to decide between unexpected landing points or the best location to allow a rapid advance to secure the Narrows. He just decided to divide his forces and make set a series of landings around the Hellas tip of the peninsula. Yes, this would be well guarded by the Turks, but he depended on the Navy to provide fire support for the ground troops as they sat on the coast. He believed the naval fire would pound the Turks into submission. The beach landings for the British 29th Division would be S Beach in Mordo Bay, V Beach in front of the Sedel Bar Fort, the W Beach just at the tip of Hellas, then X and Y beaches on the western side of the Hellas to be used as a flank, and finally the Anzac Corps would land on Z Beach between Gabatepe and Fisherman's Hut. The goal was to capture Akibaba, a high ground perched on Gallipoli. It was to be taken by dusk on the first day. This would be followed up by the landing and assault from the Anzac Corps at Z Beach to sweep down, wiping away the Turks from Khalidbar. They would land the French at the northern tip of Kumkale to counterattack Turkish Asiatic batteries firing onto the S and V beaches. The main landings at Hellas would be made in daylight because commanders feared landing at night in uncharted waters with rough currents could be catastrophic. 
The plans were set. April 25th would be the day of the landings. As they moved slowly through the Aegean Sea, the tensions grew in the air. As the River Clyde made its way slowly into the Hellas, young men waited nervously, ready to sacrifice everything for their country. All right, I'm going to wrap this episode up right here. Why? Because on the next episode, I'm going to get into the landings. The blood will start to flow. As I stated in the beginning, this episode was strictly going to be about the plans. And if you appreciate history, I think there's a good chance you found this fascinating because it paints the picture of what's about to take place. And there's still more to come just for the spring of the Great War. So lace up your boots and prepare for more. I would like to thank all my listeners for your continued support. You fans are the best. If you're on social media, you can find the show on Instagram at OTTGW Podcast and on Facebook, Over the Top, a Great War Podcast. Until the next episode, folks, take care. Take care.